Welcome to Modern Sign Books on Blog Talk Radio. If you're interested in what makes your favorite authors and collectors tick, then you'll love hearing what they have to say in our live interviews. Learn how they got started writing, the books and authors that inspired them, what they have in their personal collections, and much more. Meet today's hottest authors as they discuss their life and writing in revealing conversations with our book specialist, Roger Nichols. And find us at modernsignbooks.blogspot.com. Now sit back and enjoy a few minutes with Modern Sign Books. Here's Roger. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio. Our guest this morning shares two of the most envied traits in the writer's world, prodigious output and high-quality writing. Brian Herbert grew up in a writing family, so we're not certain whether it's nature or nurture playing the biggest part in his talent. He's the son of Frank Herbert, author of Dune, one of the half-dozen masterworks in science fiction. Brian began writing nonfiction in the early 80s with two books I now must find, classic comebacks and incredible insurance claims. But he shortly turned to science fiction, working both on his own and in the Dune universe with noted science fiction author Kevin J. Anderson. Starting in 1999, this power duo produced more than a dozen Dune sequels, prequels, and novels set in between the original Dune books to the delight of fans. And there are no doubt uh, others in the works, but his most recent book is The Little Green Book of Chairman Rama, detailing a world in which North and South America are the green states of America, a totalitarian state based on ecology. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio. Uh, hello, Roger. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, happy to be. So, Little Green Book is obviously an inversion of the Little Red Book of Chairman Mao, and this is, uh, in many ways, a delightful, or not delightful, but frightening, topsy-turvy look at that situation. Um, I was at Berkeley in the, in the 60s uh, during a, a lot of the turmoil and um, I recall seeing all these little red books um, all over these tables outside um, in, in good weather, of course. Um, and um, so I thought, well, and I, and I actually purchased, I think it was 25 cents. I purchased a couple of them and gave one to Dad. I don't, I don't know if he read it, um, but um, he, wa- he was a Republican Party speechwriter. So I, I, he, he probably, probably did read it, but, you know, but not... <clears throat> not, not, not uh, with, with slavering devotion, but um, I got to thinking Berkeley, and then I remember all those books, um, a lot of them, all all over the tables, and I thought, well, what about the little green book of Chairman Rama, and, and what if the the Berkeley folks um, took over the North and South America, as you said, and and with, with all good intentions, uh, decided to set up a green utopia, um, and of course, you know, a few things have to go wrong, as since you've read the book, you know, you, you you know some of those things. Oh, absolutely. I, and part of the, the delight, uh, we'll get to that in a second. I just want to mention a couple of things. Part of the delight for me was you had a little fun with this um, in, in, mm-hmm. in doing this inversion, I, I can tell, because uh, I, as I was reading through, uh, One Nation Under Green and the Greenocracy on which it was founded, or All <laughs> for Green and Green for All, those are delightful little tidbits in there that, that uh, I thought, okay, he he giggled when he wrote that piece down. Well, I I noticed that um, I I have a lot of progressive friends, and um, I I think it's turned into kind of a green religion with a lot of them. And, and um, Dad once told me that people tend to filter out what they don't want to see, what they don't want to hear. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you see it on both sides of the political spectrum, and you see it in religion, in which people do not listen to anything that 
that changes the opinion they already hold. And, I, and I've seen some of my progressive friends doing that, where they, they don't want to hear evidence to the contrary, or, or they don't want to think about property rights or, or the rights of an individual. But I also made my hero of the story a, a progressive, a guru sort, because when you when you really think about it, uh, the planet is is probably more important than than any people that are living on it, and we have to to take care of that planet. Absolutely, absolutely. the The thing that happens is, is I think you, it, this might also be subtitled um, that "Power Corrupts" because mm-hmm. at one point, and the, the character uh, Rama is himself more complex because he actually believes that he's doing good but he's starting to notice that uh, little oligarchies are forming around him and it disturbs him some for which we give him a little bit of credit well what I noticed is that um, good causes and, and you could say that originally Marxism was a good cause and and um, some of the revolutions around around the world say in, in Cuba and Russia that they start out you know, with altruistic thoughts, but then the the people in Russia they they end up or in the Soviet Union as it turns out they end up living in dashows and palaces and and look at China where the the sons of of uh, some of the leaders are driving five hundred thousand dollar cars and the only reason we found out about that in the news in the last couple of years is that one a young man crashed one of those cars. Well, so, so what what happens is that you have a good cause and it's it's altruistic to, to think of. Of, of the greatest good for the greatest number and, and, and equality, you know, in all ways for all people. Um, but what really happens is that there, that there is a group in each case that takes advantage of the system. Um, I noticed it happening with the Green Movement even. There is a hierarchy of people that I noticed that are, that are, that are doing well in the Green Movement, profiting from it. And for a while, there was a lot of distortions going on about um, you know what what is green and what isn't, um, and I think a lot of that's been cleaned up. But um, it it just seems that there's always this this human tendency to corrupt a good cause, and and the green movement is a great cause. I mean, the planet's critical, as I said a few moments ago. The the planet is supremely important, but there are people that are going to form power structures around that kind of a concept, and when they form a power structure their own power becomes more important than the dream of millions of people that are following them. I think one of the seductive aspects of political power is the willingness to say, look, I I have only the purest motives, but, you know, I have to do some of this log rolling or trading or uh, underhanded stuff to stay there where I can do the good. And as soon as that happens, then the slide downhill starts. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a slippery slope. Um, and <clears throat> Chairman Rama sees a lot of that going on around him. Um, about, now, Rama is not, he, he, he's, he knows that millions of people are being uh, recycled if they don't follow the environmental rules. So there's a little bit of dark humor there on my part, I guess. Yeah, but, yes. Um, <clears throat> I mean, for the good of the planet, if, if you don't follow the environmental rules, you're put on a death train and you're sent out into the wilderness where you are recycled and your ingredients are used to benefit uh, new plants. Um, and and what, I mean, what could be a better way to go, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that well, yeah, if it's of your own volition, it's a lot better. That <laughs> yeah, get, get on the train on a voluntary basis. 
there's a uh, just for fun I went through and kept a, a kind of a running list of the touchstones of um, what's the word I'm looking for totalitarianism I guess uh, so here, here's my short list uh, electronic surveillance the family guidance center which is an abortion clinic uh, bicycles always have the right of way uh, cops kill people on the spot with no trial meat dishes eaten only by the elite of society uh, children encouraged to report their parents and there's a line there you, you, this, it seems like it might have come from some other dictator it says children hear me the state is your family and I am your true father um, no religions, 100% secular, no exceptions, no loopholes, semi-mandatory use of drugs, and the worst of all, the space program scrapped as wasteful spending. So, uh, <laughs> you really did cover the waterfront on this one. Well, um, the, the, you know, the, the space program has been controversial. The, it, there's been talk about the money should should be spent here. Um, uh, on poor people, and and so that's that's a big social issue. Mm-hmm. But if if we do scrap the space program, I mean, we wouldn't even have Velcro and a lot and a lot of things that are that have been invented. So what the space program does is it it pushes the envelope of of the human mind. We have to invent and, and think about things that we never would have thought of before without that program. So I I think that NASA has not really done a good job of listing the things that. Um, and and promoting the the things that they that have that they've come up with, such as Velcro and other things, it's m- much more than that, that are in everyday use and and benefit to people. I I just don't think they've done a good PR job. Oh, I I think that you're absolutely right on that. And as far as not spending money in the space program, I I go back to Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, who said, Earth is the cradle of mankind, but mankind cannot live in the cradle forever. We, mm-hmm. we need we need to spread to some other places in case something happens here. That's my mm-hmm. personal thought. But. Yeah, you can't put all your eggs in one basket. Yeah. So um, there is an incredible uh, there's uh, a lot of interesting devices here that you've come up with for this. Uh, the uh, Janus machine <laughs> itself. This this has got to be, and I don't like to inquire too closely about, about origins of things, but I just have to think that this was one night, all of a sudden, you're just sitting there thinking about it, and then it pops into your head uh, full-blown. <laughs> um, I, I don't know how much of this actually just popped into my head. I, I was thinking about it for a long time, and, and what I do is I, I make a lot of notes, um, little scraps of paper, the old-fashioned way. I'm, I just... Did it last night. I have a little notepad by my by my bed, and I I wake up, flip the light on, and write write things down. Um, <clears throat> so I did that in this case, and of course, uh, Janus, you know, being an an, an ancient uh, uh, concept of of male and female looking in two different directions. I thought, well, why not have a machine that does two different things? And and so on on one side of the machine, it it can erase this ugly factory, just completely obliterate it, and melt it back into the uh, into the land, and then you you flip it around to the other side of the machine, and and then it shoots seeds over over that site. Um, so it's the Janus machine. Yeah, and and the uh, they call the one side Black Thunder, and the other the uh, seed cannon. And mm-hmm. a, a, as we as the story opens, we are we are meeting people who are uh, a couple who are working on the machine and. Uh, he on the green side and her on the black side, and it gets interesting and complicated from there. Uh, 
I just have, have found the way you were able to get characters that are more than just cardboard, that have some doubts, have some complications. Uh, this is from a mature writer. This is, this is not your first uh, day at the rodeo, as they say. Yeah, I've, um, counting the, a couple of humor books where I started out with, um, I think I've published about 40 books now, and wow. I've got a couple, couple more in the works. So, um, yeah, I've, I've, I've put in my dues, I guess. And, and, but it's, um, I remember when, I, when Dad was helping me with my first novel, which was actually became my third published book because I published a couple of joke books before that. But mm-hmm. with my first novel, Sydney's Comet, Dad was living in, in Hawaii, and um, I sent him a, uh, a draft of the manuscript, 300 pages of Sydney's Comet. And uh, Dad edited the first 17 pages, um, made some comments on that, and he sent those 17 pages back. And he had already been familiar with the story. Uh, I talked to him about it before, so he knew the whole story arc. But he edited the first 17 pages in, in some detail, and he sent me a note back, and he said, um, this is how you, uh, you edit and, and how you keep the interest of the, of, of the reader. And then he said something biblical. He said, go now and do likewise. <laughs> and what he had, what he meant by that and what he'd said to me before is that, you know, he can teach me a few things, and he called it the care and feeding of editors. Uh-huh. Um, but um, he can teach me a few things, but ultimately it's it's my job to, to keep up the work. And um, and so I did, and and, um, and and it's a lot of hard work. It's I think Margaret, Margaret Mitchell said you have to... Uh, put your derriere on that chair for extended periods of time. Um, and another complication, of course, is relationships. I've, I've been married 48 years. My, my wife has tolerated um, my moods, which are artistic, but um, she's also an artist, so she, she recognizes and, and understands you know, um, when I'm in a particular uh, state. D- Dad used to say, or my mother used to say, that um, she would wait for him to, to come down out of his study and uh, he, she didn't know which planet he was on up there or where he was. And so she just kind of had to be the grounding influence on him when he came out of that, that universe. Uh, you've written with your wife, Jan. Um, well, Ocean was her concept. Oh, um, I see. And yeah. it, it's quite a concept. And so I wrote the book, but always what I do with all my books is I not only dedicate them to her, but I, I read them to her, and she comments on them. And in this case, her name is, is on the cover because it's such an incredible idea to have the, the, the creatures of the ocean are fed up and they declare war on us. I just thought it was a great idea. So I, I figured out a way to, to put that into a, into a big plot. Yeah. But tell me a little bit about writing with uh, Kevin J. Anderson. How, how do you guys go about that or have gone about that? Well, we've gone about it with, <clears throat> excuse me, with very detailed outlines. Um, first, we'll meet for two or three days, and we may go on a couple of short hikes, and we walk around with his tape recorder or notepad, and we start to to uh, brainstorm and come up with overall concepts where the story is going in a in a big way, the story arc, um, and then we sit down and we do very detailed outlines, and our cha- our books are about a hundred chapters long normally uh, and so we do color coding and so particular there might be eight storylines in one book say the Atreides storyline or the Harkonnen storyline and we'll color code those 
um, so you can see where maybe a particular scene needs to be added. In, insert, you know, uh -huh. Duke Leto scene here. But you have to write it in such a way that it doesn't look like it's just a plugged-in scene. But mm -hmm. but you you can't just leave a, a, a an important storyline for too long. Um, it has to com be woven into the fabric of of the plot correctly. Um, and so we do that with color coding. And then when we have our 100 chapters, and it, I think it, it's varied from 90 to 110 or so, mm -hmm. when we have our 100 chapters, we then decide who's, who's going to write what. And so Kevin will write 50, and I will write 50, and it's, it's pretty even. Um, and so what we do is we go to our strengths. Um, I'm a sociology major from Cal Berkeley. You can see that it reflected in the little green book of Chairman Rama. Um, and Kevin is a physics major. I mean, he, he has a degree in physics, and he worked at Los Alamos and at the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory. So Kevin will do a lot of the really hard science that you'll, you'll see in there. I tend to do more of, of the social issues, so I'll write, um, I write the Benny Gesserit chapters um, mm -hmm. ab about the, you know, the, these powerful women. Right. Um, and we each come up with, with some of the, the, the big ideas, and, and then maybe the other person will write them. Uh, for example, I believe that um, Kevin first suggested the character name Erasmus, um, who is a robot who wants to be human. It's kind of like a vampire wants to be human. Yes. This guy's a robot, and he's a dangerous robot. He's killed millions of people. But... So Kevin thought, well, Erasmus would be a good name, and he's he's this robot that has this desire. And I thought, well, let's make him let let's make him into Dr. Mengele, in which he you know does experiments on humans and and all these weird things. And Kevin said, ooh, you write it, you write it. So <laughs> I, I then <laughs> I then used my dark humor to write the Erasmus chapters first draft, and then but after each of us write our our fifty chapters. We then pick one or the other to get all hundred, ah. and and we do it on computers so that there's no pages with red marks all over them to make the other person feel bad. But <laughs> on House of Trades, our our first book, I noticed that um, I I'd written this chapter I thought was really good, and and when by the time I got it got the whole manuscript back from Kevin, my whole chapter was gone. It was missing. And I thought, well, that was really one of my best chapters. I thought so. I went and found it in in my original uh, e electronic notes, and I I put it back in. But this time, I I, fig I tried to figure out without even asking. I tried to figure out what was wrong with it and what I'd done wrong. And so I I sanded it down and and made it fit better. And then when Kevin got it back, I he didn't say anything, and, and it remained in. <laughs> <laughs> so so we have things like that, and, and the plotting is is fun. Sometimes we'll. We'll be brainstorming, and and so we'll want a. Uh, I think I came up with an idea of a highliner uh, breaking down in space, and I and I put that on on an outline. We were at that point we were we were using a fax machine, I think, and we so we have this highliner, this great big ship that uh, breaks down in space, and the guild navigator dies uh, out way out in space, wow. and all our good guys are on the ship. And so I, I set that up, and then at the very end end of the, my notes on that one, I said, "Now, Kevin, you figure out how to get us out of that." <laughs> oh, I, I can tell it's you been guys. A lot have, of fun. We, you do have a lot of fun, and and having talked with him, and now talked with you, I I can see the similarities and how you would fit together very very well. Um, well, our writing styles, even though Kevin has the physics and I'm sociology, our writing um, 
styles, our syntax are very similar. Yeah. I, I want to uh, pop back into into the the little green book here for a moment because one of the things that I found fascinating, and it's it's a subplot, but it's really intriguing to me, is the regenerated animals uh, redoing the dodo, but the the glide wolf, the marsupial glider. Uh, absolutely fascinated me in that, and it becomes a plot point at, at, at uh, partway through the book. But uh, is is this? And I did not have time to look this up. But is this from a real uh, fossil record? Well, no. <clears throat> it's um, it, it's based upon um, there. There's an island um, near between Australia and uh, and New Zealand. Um, and it's in, in which some seeds of some really ancient, uh, an ancient creature was found. It's, uh, sort of like a flying squirrel type thing, but, but I, I thought, um, it's not, it's not a wolf, but it, I thought, well, why not have this, this creature that comes back and, and can, can glide from tree to tree and, and go long distances and, and cover the entire planet by, by gliding because the, the flying squirrels don't actually fly. They, they they take the wind currents and they're ex- experts at going up and down and going long distances. So, but the, there there are other creatures that have been able to do that kind of thing. And so I thought, well, let let's come up with something that that's interesting. And it's marsupial, so it has a has a couple of pockets where people can ride at, ride around in it. I, I'm I'm not one for writing about dragons, you know, so maybe this is my small version of a dragon in which people ride around. <laughs> And, and there is this fascination. Boy, there's there's so many things to talk about. It and one of the that introduces us to uh, the character of Artie, the the Hubot, which I mm-hmm. I found a, a great word. I love that. Um, who is has some biological material in it that of I'll mispronounce is Glano Artendale, uh, mm-hmm. the the great friend of Rama, who was killed. Uh, in a confrontation, became a martyr, a Che Guevara type martyr to the the cause, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that personality of the, this is absolutely fascinating. And I do hope we're going to see more in if this becomes a, a series of of some of those characters. Well, I, I got to thinking that um, one of the things that's occurred to my to my wife and, and to me. I mean, it's there, there's a lot of nuances here, but. Is that if if you look into the into the eyes of an animal such as a, a whale or, or a dog or or something like that, you have to believe there's a soul there. I mean, there's something there. It's just that it's a different a different kind of intelligence. And so one of the things that w- that I did with Artie the Hubot is that the eyes when when he looks when when um, when Chairman Rama looks into the eyes of this of this Hubot, which is really mostly a robot. Uh, but it has elements of a human being in it. He sees the eyes of his friend, um, and so I thought, well, that that's kind of a of a cool thing to think about when you look into into someone's eyes and all the depth and all the meaning and um, and and all that's there. And so I thought, and also thinking about loyalty, um, you know, loyalty is a pretty valued thing. So especially with someone like like Rama, and, and maybe he wouldn't particularly trust uh, the people around him, and you can see some of the bad things those people have been doing, profiteering and this and that. Well, Artie would not do that. He's, he's completely loyal. Um, so, yeah, he's an interesting, interesting uh, robot. <laughs> it, it is he indeed. Looks like, he looks like a human being. Yeah. Um, I think that one of the, the other things that, that 
I wanted to mention because again, there's so many things going on here. Is is our our lead character? Actually, I guess you would call it the Josh Josh Stewart, who was mm-hmm. the uh, the operator of the uh, the seed cannon on the the Janus machine, um, mm-hmm. gets transformed by a accident in a laboratory, and I'm thinking origin story here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he uh, he gets transformed by uh, when one of these Janus machines that hasn't been maintained properly uh, blows, and then he has the power uh, to both uh, destroy and, and reseed. It's sort of a um, a Hindu uh, type god type thing. So he he can now go around and 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 do all the things that the seed cannon had done. And I thought, well, wouldn't that be cool if a person could do that? You know, you just kind of look out on the landscape and and get rid of that ugly that ugly factory or that old Buick sitting out in the woods and uh, and throw some seeds over it and make it into a nice tree. And and as as the uh, fellow says, uh, complications ensue as a result of that. Um, there's there's a lot about loyalty and divided loyalties in this book that uh, come up just about every character, with exception of I would say Artie, and even even the the chairman himself has some divided loyalties. Well, I, I don't think that people are all black and white. I think, in, you know, you look at this political year as a good example. I think that people tend to try to make their political foes very rigid and, and simple, but, but, but we aren't like that. Um, and so I thought, well, these, these characters are, are not like that either, really. I mean, we're complicated people. Um, and so I, I do have a lot of conflicted, uh, I mean, and Chairman Rama, Obviously, he's conflicted by the terrible things that he sees going on, and how much how much of it can he look directly at, and how much does he have to just look away uh, for the sake of the planet? Um, some of the things you mentioned, I didn't make a complete list earlier, but you talked about uh, the drugs. You can get drugs in these injection booths and this and that. Um, yeah, some of that, uh, you see it happening. I mean, you see it, it, it and it's getting more and more. Um, there, it, it goes from the, the gateway drug that gets legalized onto the injection booth. So uh, I'm, I'm not going to make a Republican comment about that, but that was Frank Herbert's background. He was a Republican. <laughs> yep. And I don't think he would like to see injection booths. Um, even though he was a, he was a Buddhist, uh, he was a, an anti-war leader and a Republican speechwriter. So that's <laughs> kind of a, a, a nuanced person. That's a, a complex individual there. And so that's I try to make my characters that way, too. So that leads me back to something I mentioned earlier. I don't know, or maybe you do, whether you consider nature or nurture to be ending up where you did. Um, I, I think part of, the, part of the message is that um, nature, nature really wants to be in control, but it, it can be quite chaotic mm-hmm. um, once it takes over, and, and I don't know where we'll fit in. Um, so, but we have to, if, if we want to live on this planet, we're going to have to nurture it. Um, it's just a matter of how much we're going to sacrifice, how much we're going to be willing to sacrifice of, of the comforts we have. Because if, if, every, if every person on this planet lived in the lifestyle that, that we have in the United States, it would require eight or ten planets to, there just isn't enough room for right. all of us to live this way. So. I mean, Americans are the most giving people on the world, but in the world, but we're also the biggest takers. 
Um, yeah. And I think we're going to have to give give more. I, I think that's an excellent thought. One other quick little thing I wanted to mention is because as somebody who's been in the radio business for a lot of years, I notice the music references in here. And mm -hmm. uh, you are, are referencing, I suspect, your time at, at Berkeley in this. And it's, you mentioned The Grateful Dead, The Rolling Stones, and two songs by name, uh, The Beatles' Strawberry Fields Forever and John Lennon's Imagine. So mm -hmm. uh, go Berkeley, I think. Yeah, I remember being at Berkeley and, and seeing the Grateful Dead. They they came in and, and they gave concerts there, and their speakers were seemed like they were as tall as a house. So <laughs> what did that do to my hearing? You know, yeah. dancing up there by that. But I thought, yeah, let's let's throw in some some old songs from from the '60s. And really, the book is set about a hundred years later. And so the the times that I'm talking about there with the Grateful Dead and Imagine and Strawberry Fields that's <clears throat> that's all legendary times. But uh, but but the people that 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 lead the new movement are are make a, they have a street movement in which they take over uh, street by street uh, two continents and so uh, but those old days are the are the legendary old days and I and I was there <laughs> and, you, you, and if you remember it you weren't no that's that's, that's something else um, yeah. and and there was one other I thought might be a reference. Uh, at one point, you have uh, them saying one of the characters saying, "Meet the new bigwigs, same as the old bigwigs," and that reminds mm -hmm. me of the "Who's won't get fooled again." Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Don't know if that's intentional, but it seems to be there. Yeah, that's it, it's really it's, it's really the message I was talking about earlier um, that human beings tend to um, tend to ruin a good cause. Um, and and so the the, the new big wigs are are going to do the same thing that the old corporate bosses did, um, and and we're seeing it happen now. They're so so greedy. I mean, c can you believe people making hundreds of millions of dollars uh, just themselves, into individuals? I mean, it's it's just beyond belief. And and there seems no limit to the greed. And and so I'm I'm afraid that human beings would would do that even even in a in a green utopia. Yeah. Let's. Uh, can you give us a little peek behind the curtain and tell us what's coming up next? Um, well, uh, <laughs> the Wizard of Oz here. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I read all the Oz books when I was a kid, by the way. That's one of the first books I read. Oh, yeah. um, they were the illustrated versions. Um, I have an, one more environmental novel, um, and then after that, I, I think um, I have one more, I guess, hardcore environmental novel. So I have Ocean, I have Little Green Book of Chairman Rama, and I have this third one. Um, the title is the assassination of Billy Geeling, which doesn't sound environmental, but it but it is. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a, a trilogy in a sense, but they're they're not not connected, uh, <clears throat> except in in big concept. And then and then after that, I've I've got a horror novel that's um, pretty close to being being finished. And and then I uh, I published two horror novels earlier in my career and a lot of horror short stories. So I have this horror science fiction novel that I actually wrote. 25 years ago, and it had some really cool elements in it. So um, it's just a shadow of what the former book was, because I just pulled the cool elements out of it, used my new writing skills, and came up with a whole whole new plot. Um, you know, I, it, it's really hard it, if you don't sell a book, you know, years ago to just completely throw it away. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Your babies, you know, yeah. <laughs> it, it hurts, you know. So, so what you do is you you look and gee, there must have been something good in there, and and I, and I found it sort of like the chapter that I kept that that Kevin tried to throw away. <laughs> well, you're recycling in the best possible sense, then, right? 
That's it. That's it. Yeah. yeah. And and of course, <clears throat> as you noticed, the little green book is all green ink. Yes. Um, so oh, that, oh, I that, forgot to mention that earlier. Yes. It's in fact, it was quite restful on the eyes. That's an intriguing. I had not thought that would be the case, but it was. Um, yeah. Apparently, it was a big thing in the seventies. Um, so, I, yeah. I guess I don't remember. What What would you like? the writing of, of a little green book to do and are you like following it up with environmental talks or getting out to see people or uh, hoping that it becomes uh, a warning to people well the, the, the little green book is, is even though it has a has a progressive hero i mean there, there are a lot of warnings in there and and one of the warnings is is not just that <clears throat> that we, we tend to take advantage of good causes i, I think another thing in there is that I don't think the green movement always considers the rights of property owners, um, and I, I know that's that's hard for them to swallow. But I, I think it's true. I, I've seen it happen. A person will buy a piece of property under certain uh, laws uh, and and zoning laws, and then um, environmentalists will come in and try to change the zoning of that property. So they declare the the homes non-conforming, or put restrictions on that were not there when the property was purchased. Well, I, I think that there are some considerations there that the property owner should be listened to. It may not be that the property owner should get all of his everything he wants, but he has some rights. Um, uh, otherwise, all of us are, are, are going to be relegated in, into, the, into the woods, um, and maybe that's where we belong. Uh, but um, I, I think that, that considering the rights of other people, but, a big, but the bigger message there is that I have progressive friends that are very close, and I have one or two friends that are on the other side, way over on the other side that I've met at the gym. Um, and so what I like to do is I talk politics openly with all these people, and then I introduce two sides that I know are totally opposite. I introduce the people, and I've actually found that they like each other. They get along. So if you can listen to another political point of view and not try to demonize that person, you go a long, long way. And take a look at uh, Bono, um, um, Bono or Bono, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but he went to Africa and, and worked there with um, Jerry Falwell. Yeah. And can you believe two opposite cases? And take a look at what happened uh, after the levees broke um, in New Orleans, mm -hmm. in which a lot of, you know, quote-unquote hippie kids went down there, but also the, the, the kids went down there that were with churches. Mm -hmm. um, the churches sent them down there. And the two groups actually worked together and found they liked each other. So I think that <clears throat> it's one of the big problems we see in the United States right now in particular that, you know, that, that our, our representatives in Congress are not willing to reach across the aisle. Um, mm -hmm. And we tend, to, we, we tend to call people that we don't agree with stupid. Um, yeah. what, but it isn't really true. It, it's just as I've said earlier and in other places that animals have a different form of intelligence than we do. Well, I think person of a political opposite to yours may have some things that you could learn from them. Um, so I'm sorry to get on my soapbox no, there, Roger. Beautiful, <laughs> and and it's and it's true. If you know people as people, if they're not just mm -hmm. objects or you know a position that you can disagree with, it's a lot harder to to and you're uh, to fight with them and more easy to find common ground. And I think we should probably do more of that at all levels. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Want to mention uh, your website? Uh, absolutely, sure. It's um, brianherbertnovels.com, and 
course, it's got the, the three W's in front of it. Mm-hmm. Um, my Facebook page is the same, Brian Herbert Novels. Um, and then on Twitter, I was not able to get my own name. Somebody <laughs> already had it. So okay. I am at uh, Dune Author. <laughs> that works. <laughs> that, that, works, that works indeed. And of course, we want to mention that uh, your books can be found at the VJ Books, one of our favorite places. Absolutely, and, and there are signed copies available at, at VJ Books. All right. Anything I have not brought up you want to mention? Um, no, but I, I, I tend to answer questions in a very long, long way, and I'm, I'm glad you didn't ask me too much about Frank Herbert because that would have completely sent this interview off on a tangent because I, I always have a lot of nuanced answers and, and little uh, anecdotes to tell about Frank Herbert. We'll, was, we'll do that next great. time. Okay. It was great growing up in his, his household and trying to get to know him. He was so complex. Indeed. I, I want to thank you so much for spending time with us today. Our, our guest has been the estimable uh, Brian Herbert. Uh, his latest book is The Little Green Book of Chairman Rama. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Roger. I enjoyed this. You've been listening to Modern Sign Books on Blog Talk Radio with book specialist Roger Nichols. Be sure to check us out at modernsignbooks.blogspot.com.